0: Hashem Hashem na'aseven atzliach, Good to be here, Baruch Hashem. We uh, are uh, a week away from uh, Rosh Hashanah, Judgment Day. Uh, Like I said on Sunday, some people are ready, some people will be ready, some people will never be ready. Um, Life's tests continue to come. Uh, And um, interestingly enough, if you notice... A lot of really big makot, a lot of really big problems happen right before Rosh for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, it seems, I don't know, my, my perspective, it seems like there's a lot more problems right before Rosh for most people. Shem Achem, there's more death, there's more sickness, more financial problems. Uh, More fights, just more, more big tests, big tests, right before Rosh Hashanah. And I've noticed that over this last uh, several years, that uh, each year is more difficult than the next, uh, with big things coming before the end of the year. And it seems like, at least to my uh, uh, what I've uh, what I've learned, is that. before the baalabait shuts down the store he has to close all the accounts in Israel when I was a kid the uh, uh, the store the local store this I think his name was Rafi in those days the entire supermarket the store was literally... The size of maybe, like, from here to the wall. That's a tiny little place. Tiny, tiny. Not even the rest of the wall. Just a Tiny little thing. You have one shelf on top of the other. You have a little milk. A little of, uh, gvina, you know, some cheese, some chalva, a few mamtakim, bamba, beastly. You know, very, very minimal, but everybody got whatever they need. Some eggs. Cookies. Stuff, minimal stuff. Cleaning, you know, but everything was one choice. Not like today, you go to the supermarket and you want to get cookies. There's a whole aisle from here until Antiochus. Just of cookies. Black and white cookies, pink and white cookies, this cookie, that cookie, cookie with jelly, cookie with cream, cookie with cream and jelly, cookie, the jelly, and then there's a cookie in it. Oh, Shem Achem, how many cookies By the time you finish the cookie aisle, you gain weight just looking at them. Why do you think I'm like this? So, in those days, very, very different. In those days, very different. You go to the store, you have one cookie. You want it or you don't want it? Maybe two, maybe. Most of the time, just one. One type of cookie, two types of cookies, maximum two. Milk, one product, there's one kind of milk. All cows are the same. You like it or no? Eggs, one type of egg. Here today, you go to the supermarket. The supermarket has their own brand, and then they buy other people's brand. And I'm, by the time you look at the eggs, like, what's the difference? They're all eggs. So how do you judge? You judge based on price. Oh, this one is two thirty nine. This one's two forty nine. I'm buying the two thirty nine. Why? You don't know the difference. The Eggs. Biggest waste of money, in my opinion, is buying organic eggs, because organic eggs for Jewish people they're not kosher most of the time. Because they uh, there's uh, it's very very common for them to have blood in them. So as soon as you open the egg, you see a little speck of blood in it. You have to throw it out. Uh, so uh, Jewish people can't eat eggs with blood in them. Uh, so organic eggs tend to have much more blood in them than uh, much more common than uh, regular uh, non-organic eggs. Uh, I know in one uh, one dozen that my wife the last time she got uh, organic eggs it was maybe like two years ago. She told me I'm never buying organic eggs again. I'm like, why? She goes, we bought a dozen and 10 of them had blood in them. It's like you're throwing the money in the garbage. Just throwing the money in the garbage. Now some people are going to say, yeah, but you can take it out. Taking out the blood of the egg is not something that uh, most people know how to do. It's a specific skill. It's not so simple uh, because you have to take, usually the blood is from the top and the bottom and the reality is, is that it's very, very difficult to, uh, to to do it properly. And if you make a mistake, it's karet. But I don't understand people sometimes. Like, you're just willing to just take that on for a dollar? You're just willing to have isu karet, like a mechalel Shabbat, like a Oved Avodah Zara, for to save 40 cents? 40 cents. This wonderful woman that... Uh, Ask me questions about different things in regards, specifically in regards to modesty. The issue continues. It's like a, it's like a Groundhog's Day about the wigs. Keep asking the same questions, just in a different words. Is it allowed? Not allowed. Is it allowed? Not allowed. Ashkenazi, Sephardi, this, that. And uh, she said, "Well, listen, I'm uh, I'm a widow now." Shemah and uh, would it be okay if I, if I, uh, you know, if the if the wig is not Abu Dzerah, if the wig is not Abu Dzerah, would you say it's okay for me to wear it because she's just Kenazi? Now this was maybe fifteen minutes after I sent her a list of poskim, maybe uh, seventeen or twenty. I think seventeen poskim, dole and that said that wigs were not allowed even before the Abu Dazara. Meaning, Ravel Yashiv, Ravozner, Aravadia, many, many Gdolim, giants, not uh, little local rabbis from the Orthodox. Gdolado says not allowed even before the wig, even before the Abu it Had nothing to do with it. The vast majority of poskim uh, throughout all of history have said wigs are not allowed simply because it's not modest. But uh, some people say that no, but there is a way to make them modest if they're shorter and so on and so forth. Yes, but the problem is today's wigs are not the wigs they said are allowed. But either way, we're not going to go into the same issue for the 5,000th time. What's the khidush what's the here? So she asked me, so I'm a widow. She's not married, but she's used to wearing a wig. Can I continue wearing a wig? If I said, No, it's not, not Avodah Zarah. So I said, listen, based on all the information, this is what I would tell anybody, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, you could be an alien from Mars. You want to visit me, you want to ask me about a wig, I'll give you the same answer. Based on the information that I know about wigs, number one, being the fact that there's over 130 poskim that we've that we've seen, they're psaks throughout history, Gdoleado, ado, not poskim that uh, your local guy that just graduated yeshiva last week. I'm talking about from here all the way to Yonatan know, ben Uziel almost 3,000 years ago. We've seen the giants of giants write specific things against wigs, even when they looked like straw. Even when they looked like they, forget it, it had nothing to do with uh, long, nice. No, no. Even when they looked like straw, they said still not allowed. Now, if you compare the two, how many said yes versus how many said no? You're talking about twenty to one ratio. So. We've, so even in regards to modesty, we've already seen there's so many that say no, before Avodah Zarah. Now that we've seen in Bauch Hashem, a lot of research has been done. And another edition of the book is coming out, Be'ezat Hashem, very soon. I just got the latest version today. It's uh, in the final draft. Uh, the first is going to be in uh, Hebrew, but Bauch Hashem, we're making an investment at Be'ezat Hashem to translate it to English. Uh, which pretty much concludes without a single doubt in our mind that if you're buying a real hair wig in the world today you have Avodah Zara in your head. It's not an assumption it's not maybe it's a certainty. Not having it, you're more likely to win the lotto six times in a row not having why? Because of the way that the wig industry works number one, when a woman shaves her head, it's not her head goes on somebody else's head. Each wig, on the average, is three. Is three is uh, is three heads. So even if you got one from, let's say, I don't know, some poor woman from Europe decided to shave her head, fine, she wanted to shave her head. But then you got the other two heads are from India. The vast majority of the hair is from India. That comes from Avodah Zarah, so you have a problem. So, with that being said, it's impossible. Also, it's even worse for the hair extensions. A lot of young girls today wear hair extensions. Those are 100 million percent. I forgot to even mention it over the years. I just assumed, uh, mistakenly, that people just knew. That's even worse than wigs. That's 100% uh, Indian hair. There is nothing else. There is no other market. It's 100% for sure. Even you ask the, the people selling it, said say they have no problem. Hair extension, 100% Abodezara. 100% Abodezara, hair extensions. The wigs was what people had a effect on until recently. We have So now, based on the likelihood of it being Abu Dazara, based on the amount of people that have said, people proud of giants, Torah giants throughout Ami's history, that have said it's not allowed, even without the Abu Dazara. Even if you want to say, oh yeah, but I'm going to wear a, a, a synthetic, synthetic, well, we've done research that uh, said that, uh, un- unfortunately, the hair is so cheap, real hair is so cheap, because there's such a surplus of it, because people are giving it for free in India, that it is cheaper than the synthetic. So what they do, what a lot of manufacturers do, is actually put some real hair in synthetic weeks to, make it, to fill it up, to make it more volume and so on because it's cheaper anyway, plus it creates more volume. So when they did some research, like scientific research, they found out that uh, a majority of them have at least 1-2% to 2% real hair in them. Now even if it has one hair, not 1%, one hair in 60,000 hairs in a wig, one hair is abu You don't know which one of it, you're not allowed to wear it. You can't take it out, you're not allowed to wear it, that's it. Finished. The whole thing is pasul. So, with that all being in mind, addressing synthetic wigs, addressing extensions, addressing real hair wigs. And it's, so we have the Abu Dazara part. Then we have so many Puskin that say it's not allowed. It's not allowed. Regardless of the Abu In my opinion, whatever that three cents that my opinion is worth, maybe two, discount. Whatever the opinion is worth, Rabotai, I just wouldn't take the risk. That's what I'm trying to say. I can never tell you, you know what? go for it. Go for it. Wear that wig. Show them what, show them what it looks like. I can never say that. You want to do it? That, that's, that's your issue. Listen, all of us have issues. Where well, you think I'm perfect? I'm probably worse than all of you. I'm trying to do tshuva. That's why you have these shurim. But the point is, Rabbotai, is I can never tell you, no, no, it's okay. You're safe. You're okay. You're okay. Why? Because I know the information. Now, all of the people that are actually saying, no, it's okay, it's okay, show me one of them that did half the research we did. They're saying, okay, but based on what? Oh, the Rebbe said when he was alive. Okay, that's almost 30 years ago. And the information that we have today, he didn't have. He wasn't an avi. He wasn't a prophet. And if he was, he would have told you it's not allowed 30 years ago. So, the reality is, anyone that ever said it's okay, didn't say it's okay based on today's information, whether it be the modesty in the wigs today or it be the avodah issue in the wigs today. Point being that anyone that ever said it's okay—that's a big—that's a gedoladol big, that we can honor and respect. He didn't say today is okay. He said yesterday is okay. You know, yesterday meaning thirty years ago is okay, forty years ago is okay. So based on that, I could never comfortably tell you. You know what? I'm willing to go to bedin of Shemaim and fight for you. Why? Because if I say it's okay, I have to go to Beddin of Shamaim and fight for you. When they say, when they show you it's not okay. They show you it's not okay. Look, look, she wore a wig. The whole thing was good except one hair was Avodah dazara One hair. There's 50,000 hairs. One hair was Avodah dazara But she said, oh, no, no. Hashem, look, look, look. Rabbi Yaron, he with his two cents, he said it's okay. Oh, bring Rabbi Yaron. You said it's okay. I have to go fight for you now. I can't fight for you. Why? Because I said it's not okay. I can't. So the point is, Rabbutai, is that it's not even a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of okay, not okay. It's just too much risk. It's too much risk and it's not worth it. It's not worth the punishment that comes along with it. It's not worth it. And whereas Jews are not allowed to walk blindly. Now, what do I do? Somewhat, many people ask me all the time, what do I do when I see a woman wearing a wig? What do I do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I care about her just as much as I care about every single Jew in Am Yisrael. I try to help her just as much as I try to help every Jew in Am Yisrael. It makes no difference to me whether you wear a wig or you don't wear a wig. Either way, I know you have to do chuba. If you wear a wig, I know you need to do chuba for the wig also. If not, you have to do chuba for something else. It makes no difference. I love you just as much. I'm not judging you because you wear a wig. People think that I'm like this uh, anti-wig fanatic. Like maybe I have a hat store on the side. And I'm I'm doing uh you know uh, protests in the middle on Shabbat. No wigs. No. What do you think I do with my life? Like you have a wig, you have a wig. What can I do? You chose it. Other people choose other sins. Does that make it okay? You have a serious problem. You should do tshuva for it. But there's other people that also have problems. Mechalei Shabbat, eshet ish, zera levatalla. how many sins Am Yisrael sometimes have? Sometimes. So that's why we have tshuva. So the point is that we try to inform you. We try to inform you. Why? Because I know that with information in your hand, you're much more likely to make the right decision. Because now you're informed. You're an informed person. Now, if you're not informed, you don't know, then by default, your, your likelihood of making the right decision is almost nil. It's almost nothing. If you made the right decision, you made the right decision for the wrong reason. Like somebody sent me, a student of mine sent me a, uh, a, a chidush the other day. And he said a very nice chidush. And he said, the uh, if somebody gets angry, we know from Gemara Masechat Shabbat, somebody gets angry and they act out on their anger, it's like avodah zarah, It's like idol worship. Like if they take something, they throw it. It's like, Abu we've talked about this a few times. And his khidush was, yeah, what about the person that made him angry? Then he helped the Abu Dazara, So he probably goes to gain also. It's a very nice thought. So before, so he asked me, so it's good, right? So before I said good or not good, I said, what's the source? So I don't have a source. Ah, oh, so you don't have a chidush then. Why? Because you cannot just assume, you cannot just assume that your thoughts are valid. You can't just assume that your thoughts are da'at Torah. Meaning, if you actually have a chidush, the chidush has to agree with some chacham that came before you. You can't just say, no, no, I think this. Why do you think this? It just makes sense to me. Who are you? Is it contradict the chachamim that came before you? Does it agree with the Chalim, the king before you? Like, who, what, what do other people say about what you're saying? So, Bauch Hashem, Bauch he actually meant well, and he actually got it right. He did he did right. It's actually in Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, page 32B. which actually says that if a person makes another person angry, it's he actually also gets punished for it. He also gets punished for it if he does it. Why? Why? You're not allowed to put an obstacle in front of a blind person. So, for example, if, let's say, you know that uh, your friend hates this guy. There's some guy he doesn't like. He doesn't like Steve down the street. He doesn't like Steve. So, you know that if you tell him that Steve just got a new car, he's going to get angry about it. He's going to get really annoyed because he doesn't like Steve. For whatever reason, he doesn't like Steve. Maybe Steve is a rasha, but it doesn't make a difference. You're not allowed to tell him that Steve just did something good. You're not allowed to tell him that Steve is doing good. Why? Because you know it's going to make him angry. He's not going to be happy for Steve. you go got to gain on for that. Why? You're putting a mechshol if You're putting an obstacle because you know he's going to do it. Now it's not like you tell him, listen, your brother that you love, your best friend, your this or that, he, he's getting married. No. You're telling him something that he hates. You know for sure. If So yes, there is, there is, uh, there is uh, truth to what he's saying. Yes. If you make somebody angry on purpose, you actually go and get punished for it. So, the point is, Rabotah is that when we have Torah, we always have to make sure that there's a source, there's a basis for what we're saying. And when you review the basis for why a woman should wear a wig versus why she shouldn't wear a wig, meaning the opinion to say yes, the opinion to say no, in my opinion, and I think anyone that's rational's opinion, when they review all of the information we reviewed, not just the information they reviewed 20 years ago, all of today's information without bias, I don't think anyone in their right mind will ever say that yes, you should continue wearing the wig. And simply because it is too risky. The likelihood of you having a kosher wig is very, very small. It's very, very small. And anyone that wants uh, to at least Give themselves the highest likelihood of going to Gan Eden, going to Olamaba, is not going to want to take such big risks. Why? What are you taking the risk for? To make the neighbor happy? Because she because she complimented your wigs? Like what are you doing it for? That's really what I always ask. It's that's where I got this idea that I'm telling you right now. Like that's what a person needs to think. For what? What are you doing it for? What are you doing? What are you wearing the wig for? If you're saying, I'm wearing it for my husband, your husband doesn't need to see the wig. Why? When you're private with him, he sees your real hair. He doesn't need to see your wig. So it's not your husband. Why? Because when you're out with the wig in the supermarket, your husband's at work. He's at the cola He's somewhere else. He doesn't see you. He doesn't see you. So it's not for your husband. Don't tell me it's for your husband. If it's for your neighbor, what, so your neighbor says, oh, wow, your wig looks really nice. Oh, it looks real. Wow, like what? What are you? Why? So she's happy. So you're gonna take a risk of making Hashem upset for your neighbor? Was well, she gonna fight for you? in Allah in, 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 in emit, she's gonna say, "Oh no, no! I vouch for her, Hashem. I'll fight. I'll go to get home for her." She's gonna do it for you. She's barely gonna remember you next week. As soon as you give her the wrong look, she doesn't want to be a friend anymore. So for what are you doing it for? What for? For Steve at the supermarket? Week it says, wow. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Yochanan, you're looking good. What? What are you? What, 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 who are you doing it for? That's what. That's what everybody, every Israel, has to think. For what? For who? Who are you showing off for? What, for the third, for, for the for the half a second uh, compliment that someone is gonna say about you? It's just like the egg. You're gonna take a risk to, to for isu karet to eat. Blood? For what? To save 30 cents? You're going to eat the, 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 the egg with the blood so you can save 30 cents? Like, think about it. That's what we have to think. That's what we have to think. Is it really worth it? Forget about looks good, doesn't look good. There's nothing uh, that anyone that has a little bit of your Shemaim knows looks good, doesn't look good. It's not part of the calculation. If you're worried about looking good for your husband, for your husband you could look like Malkata Yofi, private private. If you you want to look good for other people, that's a problem already. So that's the thing. That's what you always have to calculate. But again, Rabotai, when we look and we view and we see all of the information, we calculate based on that. Based on that information and that information alone. But if I see a a Israel that's wearing a wig, chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, I never judge them, I never look down on them, I never say that they are less Because I know, most likely, there are plenty of things they're much, much better than I could ever be. Forget they're better than I am now. They're much better than I could ever be in certain things. You see, a woman, any woman, anybody said, prays to Hashem. How she cries to Hashem? Alvayalai, they can cry to Hashem like that. You see, a woman uh, cares about her kids, and she's willing to have more, even though there's so much pain. I can deal with, with with such happiness, bring more kids to the world like that. So you don't judge them. You want to help them. It doesn't mean it doesn't make it right. And that's the way you got to look at anyone that you know for sure is sinning or is a fake sinning or looks like they're sinning. You're not hating the person. You hate the sin. Gemara Maseret Barachot, Buria, the wife of Rabbi Meir Baal Anes gave the chidush to Rabbi Meir. And she told him hate the sin, not the sinner. Hate the sin, not the sinner. So we don't judge, we're not a judge, we're not a jury. All we are here is to provide information. Once you have information, you're going to make a decision accordingly. And of course, again, sometimes we are so used to our actions that even if those actions, even if we know they're a sin, it's still hard for us to overcome it. Even if a person watched all of my Wasting Seed lectures, it's not just because he watched them, automatically he becomes uh, Yosef HaTzadik. He stops automatically. It takes time. It takes training. It takes effort. It takes Shichat Even if a woman saw all of the videos we made about wigs, it doesn't mean she's going to stop tomorrow. She automatically... Why? It's a life adjustment. She's used to seeing herself a certain way. It's a, it's a big thing. But everybody needs to know this. That for you to put a mitpachat on. I can't even say I understand the difficulty because I never had that type of difficulty. I never had to put a mitpachat. But I can tell you that according to the Chachamim, this is no less than Akedat Yitzhak. In this generation, this is no less than Akedat Yitzhak. Why? Because the Zohar Kadosh says that there's two major issues that are going to happen before the Mashiach is going to come. For women, it's going to be issues of immodesty. Issues of immodesty that lead to Zerah Levatala. The men, Zerah Levatala, as a result of the immodesty, but also for their own issue is Torah. Learning Torah. Guys have a hard time learning Torah. Sometimes they can put on a shiur, watch a shiur for three hours, at the end of the shiur says, so what do he say? I have no idea. He says, Sir, in the next day you see the guy violating, he goes, no, the rabbi said no. Oh, he did? Yeah, you sat right next to me for three hours. I didn't hear it. What, do you, what did you hear then? I don't know. What do you remember from the Yeshua? I don't know. Why would you come? I don't know. So, the boys in this generation have a hard time learning Torah. And even if they learn, sometimes they learn and they go blank. So, this is a big thing for a woman to take on for the perfect time to do it. Take on, putting on mitpachat, being more modest in general with all of our clothes. It's very, very difficult, but if you're ever going to do it, this is the time. This is the time to do it, or at least to try to do it, or if you can't do it all at once, at least do it on, let's say, on Shabbat. Or do it, I don't know, try. It's again, sometimes it's uh, difficult to take it all at once, but the point is to try. The point is to try to do something. Try to do something. Don't show up to Rosh Hashanah empty-handed. Show up to Rosh Hashanah. Okay, I'm going to take on something this year. Even if it's not the Rosh, it's something else. Something. Do something. That's the point. Because we're going to ask Hashem for a lot of stuff. You can ask him for Parnasah. You can ask him for children. You can ask him for Shlom Bait, You can ask him for Limud. You can ask him for a lot of wonderful things on Rosh Hashanah. So you have to come with something. You have to be bearing some. Oh, okay, Hashem, listen. I, I'm asking for a lot of stuff, but just so you know, whether you give it to me or not, I'm bringing a korban. What's my korban? All my old clothes that are immodest, garbage. All that chilul Shabbat that I, I did—were talking business on Shabbat. No more. I'm vowing to do something. You have to do it anyway. You don't need to make a nedel. But the point is, is that we have to make some type of a mental commitment. You make a mental commitment, and then you verbalize it. You actually say it out loud. That makes it real. And then during your prayer on Osho Shana, you think about it. And you ask Hashem to give you the strength to do it. This is part of the journey of of a Yehudi. This is part of the journey of a Jew. You have to continue growing spiritually because if you're not growing spiritually, you're shrinking. Judaism is not something that you can just coast. Now the Mishnai Navot that we started is uh, now at part three, to same mishnah. It's mishnah five twenty five, hey, Khafei, which talks about the life journey of a, of a yehudi. So Yehuda ben Tema says, "Who are Ya'omel? Ben chameshanim le mikra, ben azer shanim le mishnah, ben shlosh esrei shanim le mitzvot." Ben Hamish Estre leg Mara, Ben Shmonai Estre le Hupa, Ben Estreim Lidov, Ben Shloshim le Koach, Ben Arbaim lebina, Ben Hamishim le Etza, Ben Shishim le Zikna, Ben Shivim le Seva, Ben Shmonim le Ben Tishim, Lashuach, Ben Mea, Kilumet Vavaru Batel Min Aulam. Translation Yehuda Ben Tema says he's the same one that has been giving us the last couple of Mishnayot, he used to say, a five-year-old begins with scripture, meaning learning Torah, which we went over already. That's when the kid, at least in those days, today it's probably around six, maybe seven even, has uh, the ability to understand what you're telling him when you're giving him the, uh, teaching him Chumash and actually retain the information. Technically, you should already teach them as little kids. You should teach them already as little kids, uh, Parashat Shavua. Sure to teach them things even as little babies. But the point is here: the Mishnah says that you should uh, at five years old is when you start teaching them formally, a uh, an actual, uh, you know, an actual Chumash, you know, Parashat Shavua. The Rav Dov Yafet said that uh, to his The secret of how to raise kids, and the ones that heard, it, the ones that listened, it changed their life. One day, there was a uh, certain rabbi that uh, was doing kiruv, and he had kids, and. Uh, one day, his kid, young kid, asked the rabbi, "I want to come with you." He goes, ah, oh, this week I have a uh, seminar. So I'm not gonna be able to play with you or be with you. He goes, oh, so fine, I'll come, I'll come, I'll come. I'll bring my friend. Because what are you gonna do? He goes, Oh, we'll sit, we'll listen, we'll learn. Oh, sure, okay. Who are you bringing? And he brought this other boy. So the father couldn't help it, even though he's a good rabbi, good parent. He couldn't help noticing that his son's friend was mamash tzedek. Mamash like Tzadik. like just like you sometimes you see his little kids, like sometimes they're a little rotten, but once in a while you find like a little Tzadik. like he's just tzaddik, everything good, good me do. He's quiet, he's polite. He's days, there's something about them. They have this like little huach or something. It's like a little Tzadik, little Moshe Rabenu, tiny. He doesn't even know much, but he's Tzadik. He has this personality. So the father, was it bothered him a little bit. Why? Because, you know, he's working. He's in the business. He's in learning Torah. His son learns Torah. But he sees that his son's friend is like better. He says, What's the secret? So he decided to see, maybe to show. Maybe to show. So he wanted to follow the kid. So he saw the kid. Polite. Anyone he sees, hello. Looks down. Little kid already watching his eyes. Eight, eight nine-year-old little kid watching his eyes. Polite, this, that, quiet. So he decides to, like, you know, look from the, you know, just to see where he's doing. And he sees him walking down the hall. And he gets to the end and he makes sure he doesn't see him. And as soon as the kid gets to a certain point, he looks around. He sees that there's no one there. He doesn't notice that the rabbi is behind him. And he takes something out of his pocket. And he looks at it. A couple of minutes. And he puts it back in his pocket. And he goes, So the father, he's not uh, crazy. He says, come. He wants to see it. What's the secret? He wants to know what happened there. So he runs after the kid. Hey, hey, hey how are you? How are you? I want to see you. Something. Come here for, come, come, son, for a second. I want to talk to you. What happened? Oh, Yes, yes. For the, I want to know. What would you just do? because what do you mean when I do because you took something out of your pocket after you saw there's nobody there you took something out of your pocket you looked at it for 2 minutes and uh you looked at it and you put it back what is it oh this is uh this is uh musal cuz why cuz say I have uh, I have uh, this little book that abba gave me and he, he, he since we were little babies he said that his, uh is is as far as is rabbi the rabbi Yafet, said, you want to teach your kids? You want to make them angels? Make one rule in the house. No matter what age. From the age of one years old until they leave the house. There's one rule in the house. Every kid must learn two minutes of Musar a day. Two minutes. You only there an hour, two hours. Obviously once they grow and you can do more. But every kid, little baby, one years old, they, the ima says to them two minutes of Musar a day. He doesn't understand anything yet. doesn't make a difference. His neshama understands. He's five, he understands. It's seven, he understands. Point two minutes of Musa a day. Two minutes of Musar a day. The kid is eight years old, nine years old. Now he's away for the, for the weekend. But the Musa comes with him. Why? He's been doing it already for nine years. So he has a little book. And he reads it. Oh, today came two minutes. It's my, my time for the two minutes. When am I going to do it? When nobody's next to me. So he reads a little uh, Igeret Aramban. For two minutes, finished, goes on in his day. Now the kid himself doesn't understand, doesn't know how much of an impact this has had on his personality because he only knows himself as this, but everybody else notices. That's the beauty of Musa. The beauty of Musa is not necessarily something that you yourself will ever notice. But everybody else will. If you've been learning musar but no one is noticing that you're improving, that means you're not learning Musa. You're just reading stuff or listening to stuff. Some people have been watching lectures <coughs> for myself or Rav Mizrahi for a year, two years. Most of the time, ba'u Hashem, they change drastically. You see it. You see from the questions they ask you, the way they communicate. You see it. They themselves say it. Once in a while, you see that not only didn't change, but now they stopped watching you. They stopped communicating. Or if they communicate, it's uh, not nice. Something happened. doesn't happen often, but it happens unfortunately. And the reason for that is because while they were watching, while they were learning Musal maybe they're also eating popcorn. Maybe they're also eating uh, begale. Maybe they're also having a steak sandwich. But worse than all, they're also mixing some other non-kosher Torah with it. Now the Begale and the potato chips and the steak sandwich, it's not the end of the world. Non-kosher Torah is the end of the world. And the problem is that some people, they think that Torah is like a movie. And you want to keep seeing something different. So they watch you for a little while, They start doing tshuva, and then they want to watch somebody else too. There's no problem watching somebody else. The only problem is that you have to make sure the other person is kosher. And what ends up happening is that a lot of times, unfortunately, especially in the English language, unfortunately there are very, very few, relatively speaking, very few kosher speakers out there. There are very few. And there are many non-kosher. So sometimes the guy starts doing shuvah and he starts listening to some chasid that's not really a chasid. He just looks like one because he has long payas and he hasn't cut his hair in a long time. And the guy becomes a kofir after you ruins two years worth of work in two months. Why? Because all the Yirat Shammayim that you taught him for two years, this guy tells him, no, only an idiot is scared of Hashem. Only a fool is scared of Hashem. So he hears this in every shoe for two months, once a week, two months later, two years of work, garbage, garbage pail. So, Yehuda Ben Tema says that the education that you want to give your kids starts early, early. We don't start at uh, 25 years old, unfortunately, unless we don't have an option. We didn't realize that the truth of Torah is in our life already. For chuvao, people that are trying to do tshuva, we didn't really have much of an option. Living in a uh, secular house, going to public school and so on. Same thing with the converts. Being surrounded by Abu zara, all types of stiotin in life. It's not, it's not, it's, it's... But that's the point of these shiurim, is to give you fire to make sure that you give your kids everything that you didn't have. And by saying everything that you didn't have, I don't mean toys. I don't mean money. I don't mean a bigger house. People give their kids more stuff today thinking it's going to make them happy. The reality is if you compare the level of happiness of Am Yisrael or even the general public from just a couple of generations ago when the average home was poor, And the average home were six, seven, eight, nine people in one house in a little, one room. Nine people in one room, everybody came out okay. No one has ADHD. No one has epilepsy. No one has anything. Everyone's normal. Everyone's happy in one room. Nine people, one room. The bathroom is in the middle of the road because you have to share with the whole community. Everybody came out okay. Some people became rabbis. Some people became good uh, accountants, whatever Everybody came out okay. 9 people, 1 room, everyone's okay. Today, 9 rooms, 1 kid has ADHD. Has epilepsy, has uh, some other disease. He can't pay attention. You gave him 9 rooms. Miss Kenny cannot even count the 9. But he can play video games really good. He's the best one on the block. Video games? Makhmir Video games, you can play till 3 o'clock in the morning. You give him a little parashat Shavuot to read, fall asleep in 30 seconds. Parents continuously try to give the kids more stuff, more computers, more phones, more house, more toys, more stuyot. It's not going to make your kid any happier. Happiness is not something that's based on physicality. Happiness is based on your spirituality. Arav Desler Alava Shalom said, if you want your kids to succeed in life, you only have to do one thing. Make sure there's a good vibe in the house. Make sure the house is full of happiness. That's it. He didn't say, make sure you send them to Rabbi Akiva to learn. Of course, send them to Yeshiva, you have to follow Allah but he didn't say you have to send them to the yeshiva, that's $30 million a minute. Because it has gedol over there, or someone you think is gedol And it has facilities that are, there's gold uh, all over the walls. People decide what yeshiva to send their kids based on how the walls look like, not how the teachers are. That's why today you see yeshivot, how, how do they determine the price? Not based on the teachers, based on the walls, based on the paintings. Look, this painting, you see, ma'am, you see, ma'am, you see, this painting costs the school sixty eight thousand dollars. That's why the tuition is two thousand dollars a month. You have to pay for the somebody has to pay for the painting. It doesn't pay for itself. Painted. It. oh, you see the outside? You see the new maglecha, the new slides? Oh, that's new from last year. That was two hundred and fifty seven thousand dollars. That's why, that's what we're increasing. That's what we're increasing. Next year, it's not, it's not going to be $2,000 a month. Next year, it's going to be $3,000 a month. Somebody has, to, somebody has to pay for the cha You want your kids to slide? What do you want? To slide on a homeless slide that's only $30,000? or three. Come on. What, what kind of parent are you? What kind of parent are you? We're giving your kids real chinuch. He slides with style. He slides like uh, DMX and 50 Cent and M&M. The rap stars. They're all sliding on the same slide. The Bakshim Olaad were picking yeshivas based on slides. The average playground is a quarter million dollars. But nobody can afford the yeshiva. So they all just look at the playground from the outside, from outside the fence, because they just came back from public school. The stupidity of man causes him to sin and then he gets angry at Hashem that his kids are off the dirich. You have to pick a yeshiva based on the teacher. Not based on the walls. Not based on the playground. But unfortunately today, people don't know this. They don't know what Rav Desla said. They don't know what Rav Desla said that the only thing you need for your kid is to have a good vibe in the house. You have to have happiness in the house. That's how you're going to get the kid to like Torah. But if you're always Tisha if the parents always uh, act like there's death in the family, every day, the wife is crying, the husband's crying, the neighbors are crying, everybody's crying. Why? We're religious. What can we do? We're miskenim. It's like almost been like a, like a phobia. People think that if you're religious, you must be poor. It's Hashem. We tell kids, no, you can't have anything. We're not going to buy you a present ever. Why? Oh, because we're poor. Why are we poor? Because we're religious. So who says this stuff? If you look at the PEW research, an Orthodox Jew that actually keeps mitzvot like they are is just as likely to make over $150,000 a year as anybody else in the world. In fact, more likely. We forgot, we forgot how to be happy. We forgot how to make a good mood in the house, so we're trying to replace the good mood with stuff. Because the parents don't know how to be happy, because they don't come to Shireh Torah that actually shake their heart. They don't know how to be happy themselves, so what do they do? They tell the kid, no, to be happy, you have to do what we're doing. Oh, what are you doing, Abba and Ima? We have stuff. See, Abba got a new car, Ima got new nails, and a new this, and a new that, and we're getting a new house. And you see, so you have to get new stuff in order to be happy. So then, the little smart kid, once in a while, they say, "Wait, but Abba, you have the new car, right? Yeah, you have the new house too, right? Yeah, yeah, we got it. We we'll are we'll on the way. We we'll got, yeah. And Ima, you got the stuff that you want, right? But how come you still sad? How come you still tishabeyal? How come you still? Ha- how you gonna tell me a nine-year-old to be happy if you're not happy? If you're trying to make a kid happy with stuff, not only is this sign that you're not happy. They're never going to be happy. We have to learn how to be happy. Happiness does not include stuff. It does not require stuff. This is what you're supposed to teach the five-year-old. Welcome. You're all officially five. Now we're going to graduate and we go to Esar Shanim. Esar Shanim Mishnah of Shanim le Mishnah, we already went over this. this is the beginning of our oral Torah. A Jew must understand that without the oral Torah there is no Torah. Now a lot of people say, yeah but the rabbis are the rabbis, but the rabbis yes, but the rabbis. And if you look at the oral Torah, you'll understand that one of the most beautiful things that a Jew must read needs to read. and definitely should read. It's Sipuet Tzadikim. Why? When you read Sipuet Tzadikim, the Chachamim say, when you read Sipuet Tzadikim, it's like, Maaseh Merkava. What's Ma'asemir Merkava? The Gemaraim Maseret Chagiga says, Maaseh Merkava is like the wonders that happen in heaven. So what does the Tzadikim have to do with what happens in heaven? If you see the glory and the significance and the beauty of the actions of the tzaddikim, you could only imagine their creator. You could only imagine how wonderful and glorious Creator is when you see how beautiful the midot, the character traits, are of the tzaddikim, and you hear these wonderful stories. Wow! The Baal Shem Tov did this, and the Chafetz Chaim did this, and the Rav did this, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe did this. And you hear these stories. The point of them is not so you fall in love just with the tzaddik. It's so you fall in love with the Shem. The entire oral Torah. Is by significant people. It's not your average Joe. It's huge people. People that, according to according to our standards, they're malachim. They might as well be angels. The Gemara in Shabbat says, they said about themselves. The Amoraim, the Amoraim said about the Tanaim, that came to the previous generation. The Amoraim said, if the previous generation were angels, we are the son of men. But if the previous generation were men, we are less than a donkey. Less than a donkey. Who are these Amoraim? Who are these Amoraim? If an Amoraim is mentioned by name, that means that he is at a level of reviving the dead. He could take somebody out of the morgue. They froze the body for three weeks takes them out, he looks at them oh, I want you to live. The guy gets up and walks away. That's an Amorah. That's how they mention my name. If he couldn't do it, they don't mention his name. They don't mention his name. Abi Yohanan one time gave a shoe. And the shiu he said, In the time of Mashiach, you're going to build the Bet Mikdash. Betta Mikdash is going to be wonders of wonders. Much more significant than even the Betta Mikdash of Shlomo Amelich. That anyone, they say that anyone that didn't see the Betta Mikdash of Shlomo Amelech never saw beauty in his life. What you saw is something that thinks, that, that maybe looks like something that maybe one day in your imaginary dream is beauty. But Bet HaMikdash, that's real beauty. He said the Bet HaMikdash, the third one, Bezal HaShem coming soon, puts everything else to shame. What's the example Rabbi Yochanan says? Rabbi Yochanan says the doors, the doors of the Bet HaMikdash are going to be, I believe, 20 amot diamond. Each one. Two huge, meaning 40 feet. Each door is 40 foot diamond. It's not like full of diamonds. It's one diamond. Each one is a forty foot forty foot by forty foot. Forty foot by forty foot size diamond. Each door. One of the Talmudim of the Biuchhan didn't really buy it. He says, Ah, Rabbenu is a magzim He's like exaggerating a little bit. He can't even find a diamond the size of an egg. Go find a diamond the size of an egg. You're the richest guy in the world. Find one diamond the size of an egg. Not 30 feet. An egg, an egg. Find one diamond the size of an egg. You're the richest guy in the world. Size of uh, 40 feet? You know how big 40 feet is? And there's two of them too. So the, 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 the Talmud was also holy. If he's learning from Abiy Yochanan, <laughs> it's not like us learning from Yaron Uven. This is what you're stuck with. What can I do? So he had a little safik. He's like, yeah, maybe maybe he's exaggerating a little bit. You know, see poet's adikin, his exaggerations, maybe it's too much. Hashemit Bahrach knows what's in our thoughts. He never said anything, he just thought it. Hashemit Baak knows what's in our thoughts, and he says, Oh. He doesn't want to believe the rabbi? Okay, I'll show him. As it happened, this Talmid had the merit to see the truth. How? He went on a boat and the boat hit a huge wave and sank. He fell into the ocean, into the water, and as he went to the bottom of the water from the pressure, he saw what was happening on the bottom of the ocean and he saw two Malachim Shining two gigantic diamonds exactly as Rabbi Yochanan was describing. And he says to them, what are you doing? He says, since the creation of this world, we've been working on preparing the doors for the Bet HaMikdash. These are going to be the two doors. These two, 40 feet by 40 feet long and, and, and with Diamonds. Each one. We've been shining them and cutting them and preparing them. The yes. was right. As it would happen, of course, being right and then dying is not going to work. So what happened? He lived. He lived to tell the story. He flew back up, found a little piece of wood and started floating on a piece of wood, got to a piece of land and they saved him. They saved him. Eventually he came back to the yeshiva and Rabbi Yochanan on that day happened to give a sure again about what are we going to see at the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And he started saying certain things, and he mentioned again these huge doors that are made of a diamond. And the student excitingly says, Emit, Emit, k'vodara, Emit, you're, you're Emit, what you're saying is Emit. Everybody's turning around, rattle, who moves this guy, <laughs> Relax. No, Emmet, Emmet. What are we saying? Kvodarav, what you're saying is emmet I saw it with my own eyes and he tells him the whole story. I saw it. I went. And I... Now you would think. Now you, one of you guys, start screaming of the middle of my shoe. Emet! Give me a high five. Hey, I get excited. Somebody sends me a little comment on the internet. Say, oh, you're the best. High five. High five, Thank you. Right, that's what you said, no? That's only fools like us. Rabbi Yochanan. Yochanan is not a fool. Rabbi is not a fool. Rabbi looks at this Talmud and he says, oh, you have to see in order to believe. Are you saying that if you didn't see what I said, you wouldn't believe it? You fool. He looked at him with his eyes and the guy burned to crisp and died on the spot. The kedusha of Rabbi Ochanan did not allow this person to continue existing. Why? Because he had to see before he believed. Now imagine what the merit of this Talmud is. I mean, he saw angels. Last Last time I saw angels was never. If I saw angels, by the way, I'm not giving you guys any lectures anymore. I'm saying, guys, I'm too good for you guys. I have angels and my friends. They talk to me. They give me chidushim. <laughs> we graduated, guys. Go find a new teacher. Maybe I'll call somebody for you. I talk to angels now. Oh, this guy saw angels and he lived to tell the story. Imagine what kind of merit he had. But the emet is bigger than that. Rabbi was warning us, Tamim t'yeim Hashem, you must be complete with Hashem, even if you don't see, especially if you don't see. If you're only going to wait to see in order to believe, it's only a matter of time before you become a kofir. It's only a matter of time before you become a heretic. Why? Because none of us have the merit to always see. Even Moshe Rabenu was not able to see everything he wanted to see. So if you're always going to wait to see in order to believe, it's better off you die early before you make those big sins of kafira. This rabotai is who we're dealing with when we're talking about the Mishnah. This is our oral Torah. B'uchim ha-baim, you're officially ten years old. Next, ben at thirteen years old, you now are as a man are obligated to do the mitzvot. Of course, you don't start doing mitzvot at 13, but you're now obligated. The difference is, until now it was practice. You have to teach your kids how to fulfill the mitzvot already when they're little. If you look at some of the houses of the tzaddikim, they already teach their little girls modesty when they're 2-3 years old. A lot of the houses that don't teach their kids modesty at 2, 3 years old and they wait until later on, they wait until they're 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 years old to teach them modesty because that's when they become obligated. Guess what? Those kids never become modest. Why? Because the kid is already used to wearing a tank top and shorts the first 10 years of her life. So now all of a sudden you're saying that because I'm 12 years old I have to go And wear this uniform? Okay, I'll wear the uniform for school because it's a school uniform. It's not a lifestyle. So this is why I advise all mothers to make sure to, to dress their daughters and their sons. But especially their daughters modest from the time they're babies. Baruch Hashem, my wife, God bless her. She's the one that originally gave me this idea. And you see, you see how the kid grows up. You see what the kid thinks about. You see how the kid behaves. You see the kid is naturally modest. What my wife wears, the kid wears. My wife wears, Baruch Hashem, long dress. Covers everything. Long sleeves. No such thing as short sleeves. No such thing as half sleeve. Long sleeve all the time. And the dress all the way to the feet all the time. All the time. Why? Perfectly comfortable. Perfectly modest. What do I need anything else for? Different colors, different things, whatever. But the point is, what do I need this, anything else for? Guess what the kid wears? Same thing. Little Sarah, since she was a little baby, wears the same thing. To go to sleep, she wears little pajamas, but aside from that rest of it, she wears a little dress. Now, why is it a big deal? Because little Sarah, if she runs, she has little pants under it, but also she has the dress. And you think, no, oh, she's hot. No, she's not hot. She's not hot at all. She's very, very comfortable. Now, how, did, how do I know this affected the kid? How do I know, Baal Hashem? How do I know? Because once in a while, I take a little Sarah, that's three years old now, Baal Hashem, three and a half years old, I take her to the store with me. I take her to the store with me. And I took her this Friday to the store with me to do some shopping for Shabbat. And she's in my cart with me. And, you know, adults like to say hi. Hi, cute. Hi, give me high five. You know, the other people like to say hi because, you know, I see a little cute kid. And they want to say high five little sari, sh'tabakh shimol hides. Well, somebody says, hi, she doesn't know them? Now, if she knows them, you see anybody that knows my little daughter, knows she's very friendly, very happy, very, very good. She doesn't know you? Why? It's not modest to talk to strangers. Who are you? You see that in her little, tiny little neshama, little body over there, already something's happening. Why? Because our mother is, she teaches her to do it. But if she didn't, if she wore what every three-year-old wears, she wears shorts and t-shirts all the time, somebody says hi, she'll say hi. She'll be friends with men, with women, with this, with that. She'll do whatever she wants. Now, it's not really that much of a problem at three years old, because it's still three after all. But the problem is that the three doesn't, you know, continues, and it's four, and it's five, and it's six, and it's seven, and it's eight, and it's ten. And then finally you tell, no, listen, motik, you're 12 years old. Now you're obligated. You had your bat mitzvah. You're obligated to do your uh, everything. You have to be modest. Okay, I'll be modest for school. When I go to school, I'll be modest. No, I'll wear the uniform. They tell me whatever you want me to wear. i wear it. I'll go to school with yeshiva, with the uh, dress and uh, gown and whatever you want me to wear. No problem. But as soon as I come home, I'm going back to my uh, nothing wear. Why? I've been wearing it for 12 years. It all starts when they're little kids, rabotai. It all starts with their little kids. And it's much easier. Much easier when they're little kids. Why? They're going to like what you tell them to like. And if the ima does it, the daughter does it. She likes it because she wants to be like ima. So, when when the Mishnah says here that a person is obligated to mitzvot, it's not telling you that's when you start mitzvot. It's telling you that at this point, if you haven't done it, you're getting to the point where it's getting too late. It's not officially too late but if you're only starting to discipline your kids at the time they're 12 or 13 years old it's almost too late almost too late why because at 12 or 13 years old the child already has their own personality they have their own likes they have their own friends they have their own desires and even though they don't really know what they're doing they think they do they're convinced they do and they are convinced you don't because you're old no young kid thinks that old people know anything, unless the young kid learned a lot of Torah and he understands that the old man is closer to Gdolado than he is. That's why we say the famous story of Av uh, Kaminetsky. Av Yaakov Kaminetsky was on a plane one time with his son, and his son was a little boy, and next to him was a uh, successful. Nobel Prize winner, his son. And all the time they're on the plane, the Nobel Prize winner, the secular Nobel Prize winner, had to deal with his son asking stuff for stuff. Abba, I'm hungry. Abba, I'm thirsty. Abba, I'm cold. Abba, I'm hot. Abba, I uh, need something to play with. Abba this, Abba that. The whole plane ride, Kapat no, twelve hours. He's asking him for stuff like he's a vending machine. Now this is something that the professor got used to already. He's had the kid for a while. But what he didn't get used to is seeing how this religious guy next to him, that he didn't know is even a big rabbi, the gedolador he didn't know. How he his kid is. Because the whole plane ride of 10-12 hours, he sees the opposite. He sees Rav Kamenetsky's son say, Abba, are you hungry? I want me to get you something to eat. Abba, you thirsty? I want to get you something to drink. Abba, you cold? I want me to get you a cover. Here's a cover. You want the cover? Abba this, Abba that. But he's giving Abba something. And the Nobel Prize winner that was very successful and had tons and tons of money and houses and this and that, was eating himself up. And at the end of the ride, he said to Rav Kaminetsky, and he said, what is it? What would you do to train your kid? He goes, what do you mean? He said, your, your kid is always just serving you the whole time. How would you train him? I said, oh, it's not training. It's very simple. He goes, you probably believe in science and evolution and so on. He goes, yeah, of course. Well, who doesn't believe? Oh, okay, so you believe that everything started from monkeys, right? Of course, everything started from a monkey. So you believe that ancestors are monkeys, right? Yeah, okay, so that means that your son believes that the ancestors are monkeys too, right? Of course, that's why I taught him. What's that? Exactly. So that means that your son understands that every generation is more developed than the last. Which means that you are closer to the monkey than he is. You are less developed than he is. Therefore, you should serve him. Because he's much more developed than you. He says, see us, we believe in the Torah. We believe that everything started from Adam Arishon and it's been downhill since then. That the previous generation, by default, law of Torah is better than us, smarter than us, wiser than us, in every single way. It's impossible to say that anyone in this generation is as great as anyone before. Not even better, as great. To say it is against the rules of the Torah. This is actually one of the bayot in Chabad. When they say that their Rebbe is Moshe Rabenu. This is one of the bayot in that argument. It's It's against the Torah to say such a thing. So now, I taught my kid that every generation... Is lower and lower, but that means that I'm higher than him. I'm closer to Moshe Rabenu. I'm closer to Mount Sinai than he is. Therefore, he respects me. Therefore, he honors me. And that's how it works. Yes? What about the Vilna Goan? Could be considered, but not. Could be considered as not actually is. Almost is not it. Almost, uh, you know, a lot of things are almost. I've, I was almost six feet tall, but I'm not. I'm five, nine barely. Almost. I'm three inches away. The point is, it's a rule in the Torah. It's a rule in the Torah that every generation is lower than the one before. That's just a rule in the Torah. No one will ever be like Moshe Rabenu. No one will ever be even like Rav that That's just a few years ago. It just can never be. And anyone that knows a little bit of Da'atollah would never even compare themselves to anyone in previous generation, because they know it's, it's far away. But even if you see what they've written, what they've thought and so on. So now a person that understands these things knows that education for children begins as early as possible. Even if you think or you know for sure they don't understand a single word, always remember their neshama is no different than yours. That's why it's highly recommended to talk to the babies even when they're still in the, the mother's uterus. You should read, learn Torah out loud. Let the kid listen to these things. That's 13 years old. Congratulations, you've arrived at your Bar Mitzvah and Bat Mitzvot. Then we go up to 15. 15 years old, Mishnah says you start learning Gemara. And the reason why is because after you've learned the humas for five years, and you've learned the beginning of the Oral Torah, the Mishnah for five years, you're now ready, your brain is ready to start learning the Gemara, which is not just learning what to do, but how do we get to it. Not just learning yes or no, but how do we get, how do we arrive at yes or no. Of course, we went over the details of the points of how to learn Gemara in today's world, unfortunately, many people have too much ego, very little knowledge. So they try to learn Gemara without the proper tools. And sometimes they try to learn Gemara on their own without a teacher or without a guide, and they arrive at the wrong conclusion. They arrive at the wrong pshat. This is very, very dangerous. So a person needs to know that the Gemara specifically talks about this. In multiple places, a Torah is like a mine. It's like water. Why? Because naturally water always goes to the lowest level. Meaning, this is an analogy or a parable analogy to, uh, to, to exemplify that a person that wants to inherit Torah always has to lower themselves to the lowest level. The more humble you are, the more you will become a vessel of learning Torah. So if you think that you could get to the truth without using the commentaries, the sages, your Rebbe, you can't do it. You, you're going to do it on your own. You're never going to be a vessel of Torah. You're too arrogant to be a vessel of Torah. And Torah says, Lo Your Torah is not real Torah. Now, the woman that worked in one of the yeshivot of Rav Dov Was cleaning one day, and uh, she tried to clean under a certain uh, desk, and there was a young boy, young uh, teenager, learning over there, and he wasn't moving. She said, "Excuse me, I need to do my job. Excuse me, excuse me," and he yelled at her, "Tori, Tori, I'm listening to Torah." And she didn't understand what teirah terah is. She didn't understand what Tarah is. She doesn't she doesn't speak the language. Means skin on, She's just trying to clean. So she came, she went to the rabbi, says, Not only he doesn't let me do my job, but he cursed me. Who? One of the boys cursed you? What do you say? He said, Tirah, Tara. Oh, oh he, he didn't curse you. He didn't curse you. It means Torah. It's the book we learn. It's from Hashem. But don't worry, I'll take care of it. The Rav came out, got all the boys together. He says, none of you are learning Torah. None of you are learning Torah of Hashem. You're all learning your own Torah. You're all learning whatever you think is Torah. Lo is your Torah. Your Torah is not from heaven. It's your Torah. Why? Because if you think that you can make another human being upset and not allow them to do their job and not treat them with good, re- with respect, with honor, with kavod, because you're learning, your Torah is not from shamayim. If your Torah is not shaping your character traits, it's not Torah from shamayim. It's something you created on your own. If your Torah is not improving you as a human being, it's not Torah. It's not Torah. Sounds like it. Looks like it. May even use the same words. But it's not Torah. And that's why the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan specifically says that if your Rebbe has midot of an angel, you learn Torah from him. But if he doesn't, you're not allowed to learn Torah from him. You're not allowed to learn Torah from somebody who does not have good midot. If he does not have good midot, if he's not an exemplary Example: If he's not an example of what you should be, you're not. Forget about you shouldn't. You're not allowed to learn from him. If every single time somebody squeaks the wrong way, his head pops off of his head. If every single time a bill comes a little too early, he has no emunah whatsoever. He thinks that uh, he has to go collecting stock in the street. If every single time somebody asks a question a second time, he loses his cool. If he has no yirat shemaim, if he has no real Bitachon, if he's cheap, stingy, if he's arrogant, these types of Midot makes him not a very good teacher. Why? Because his Torah is not actually affecting him. If the Torah is not affecting him, how is it going to affect you? Congratulations, you've arrived at 15. At 18 years old, time to get married. Mishnah says, In today's age, 18 years old, most of the time do not get married. Most of the time they don't even know what marriage is yet. They think that only older people get married. Maybe they're 25, 35, 45, 55. You know, marriage is a wonderful thing. Rabbi again. I love Shalom, used to say it's a wonderful thing, marriage. It's too bad that Hashem gave it to a bunch of kids. who don't know how to be married. People don't know how to be married. They think that they get married, so they get a uh, slave. Slave to make money, a slave to have kids. She's a slave to have she become a baby oven, and uh, maybe clean the house a little bit, like the uh, the local sanitation department. And him, he's the ATM machine. The respect in many households is simply non-existent. You see how people talk to each other. See how people treat each other. It's not not a big surprise that divorce rates are going up, even in the religious world. The problem is not marriage. The problem is us, that we don't work on ourselves. We always expect everybody else to do. Everybody else needs to fix themselves. Somebody asked me, a bunch of people asked me over these last few weeks about shiduchim, shiduchim. So I always ask people questions. Why haven't you found a shiduch yet? If it's somebody that's still young, 18, 19, 20, 22, 25, they haven't found their person yet. And they're still trying to figure out who they are and so on. But sometimes you see people that are in their thirties and forties, they still haven't found a shiduch. And I ask them, why haven't you found? It? Like, what's wrong with the people you did find? And I always tell them, Oh, it wasn't a right fit for me. It wasn't a right fit for me, I couldn't find it. ten years I'm looking for a shiduch, they're the right fit for me. Okay, you haven't found a fit. Why is it not a right fit for you? What's wrong with them? Are they Well, all the people that you're uh, meeting have three heads, but only one hat, like they have four arms. What's wrong with them? What, the the Muslim, what's wrong with them? Everybody no good? So, no, less religious, more religious. uh, This different this, different that. Oh, okay, sad though. And it's the same thing over and over again. Rarely do I ever hear a person admit to say, you know what? The truth is, I didn't really give him a chance. The truth is, I didn't really give her a chance. The truth is, I don't really know what I want. The truth is, I'm too picky. I'm too picky. I want uh, Malkata Yofi. That's also going to be Sarai Menu. I want uh, Beauty Queen, but also going to be modest like Sarai Menu. I want uh, King David's in righteousness, but I also want Donald Trump's account. Rarely does anybody ever say, you know what, realistically I didn't find a shidukh because of me. I didn't find a shidukh because I'm really not really sure what I want. I'm really too picky. I'm really too... Thi-. Very rarely do people actually say it. Very rarely. I could count it in one hand, maybe. Most people blame everybody else. Everybody else is the reason why they didn't find a shidukh. Why is that the reason? For the same exact reason that I tell people... Over and over again, we do not have a Shidukh crisis. Shidukh crisis is like ADHD. It's a figment of our imagination. There's no Shidukh crisis. There's a Musar crisis. There's a midot crisis. People don't know how to behave. People don't know how to be married, even after they get married. People don't know how to be human beings. So they judge each other in certain ways for the wrong things. If he doesn't have a nice car, oh, how is he going to provide for me? If she's not uh, looking like uh, she just came out of a magazine, well, eh, how could I uh, really, like, just crazy, crazy things. And I'm not even talking about the secular world. I'm talking about the religious world. People simply don't know how to behave. They look for the wrong things. They ask the wrong questions. And the truth is, Rabotai, once a person focuses all of their effort on fixing themselves and all of their own flaws, naturally the world around them will look prettier. Naturally the world around them will look better. Naturally the world around them will become better. Course nobody's perfect. Of course, there are gonna be certain people that are flaws, and to be honest with you, every day that goes by I meet more righteous people but also more wicked, too. Some people honestly, if I if I had any control in the world, I would kill them on the spot. There's such a shaim in this in this generation, mamash evil. Some people are mamash evil, like mamash evil of evil. If it was up to me and I had any power in the world, I would look at them and just kill them on the spot without even giving them a chance to even explain themselves. Such things that people do. Evil. But they're also tzaddikim. That's why the world still exists. The point is that a person needs to first and foremost know what they want. Second of all, know what they don't want. Third of all, don't judge anyone more harshly than you judge yourself. Don't judge everybody else more, you know, less hard, less than yourself. No. Uh, more than yourself. No. Don't say, oh no, she's uh she doesn't know as much as me. Do you know anything? Oh, she's not so modest. Are you modest? Or are you one of these guys that goes to the mikveh and walks around naked? Like it's allowed. People think it's allowed to walk around naked among men. You look at the Aruch. You look at the halachot of how you have, how you need to behave in a bathroom when you're alone, not when there's other people. When you're alone, you have to cover yourself as a man. When you're alone, kal when you're with other people, not allowed to show another man your private parts. Never cover yourself with a towel. Go inside the mikveh with the towel, take it off after you're inside the mikveh. Trust me, there's something called a dryer. They'll dry the towel. It doesn't go bad. You're never allowed to show your private parts to anyone other than your wife, and even then, it's when it's dark. As a man, I'm not even talking about kabachomah for women. But guys walk around the mikveh like they own the joint, and this guy this, and this, all these... Chilul Hashem videos people send all over the internet of guys how they behave in the Mikveh Hashem Mirachem. It makes the secular people want to become goyim. Forget secular. They want to become that. this is religious people. This is how you behave in the Mikveh in the place of holiness. You see how people behave in the Mikveh Hashem Go on Nefesh. You look at the Shuchana aruch. You see how a man is supposed to. Just a few alachot, ten alachot. How you supposed to behave in a bathroom? I looked at it. I wanted to, like, I wanted to, like, Mamash I said, pashanu." I have to do this. I have to do tshuva. This is when you're alone. But people have say, "No, no, she's not modest enough for me." Are you modest? Why don't you become modest, Mr. Jones? Why don't you become modest first? Then if she sees you a living Baba Sali, then she'll say, Oh, my! how can a woman, since married to Baba Sali, walk around not modest? Just to be a uh, mishugat. Just to be crazy. Why? A husband's modest. She's going to walk around not modest. Modesty means how you, cl- how you wear clothes, how you behave, how you speak, how your eyes, where they go, where they don't go. Modesty is not just uh, putting a black and white and just looking like a uh, penguin. Penguins don't go to Olamaba, by the way. They all blend black and white. Cows also, black and white better than us. Fits fitted. They don't go to Olamaba. At 18 years old, a person needs to, at this generation, maybe they're not always getting married, but at least they have to start preparing. Meaning, tshuva, real tshuva must begin at this point. It's getting too late. It's getting to the point where if you don't start doing tshuva, life is going to become very, very difficult. At 20 years old, pursuit of a livelihood. Some say livelihood meaning a life of Torah. Some say livelihood meaning he has to learn a mikzoah. He has to learn some type of profession so he can provide for a kalah. In our generation, most kids, all they can think about is money when they're 18, 19, and 20 years old because that's the house they come from and they see it on TV and on the phone and on the internet and the cars and the houses and that's what people talk about. It's not much of a problem today as far as to convince people to go to work. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to try to convince them to become a Talmud Chacham. Go to yeshiva. I've asked this a few times. Went to young yeshiva. I asked a bunch of kids. How many of you want to become a Talmud Chacham? Almost no one raised their hand. I think one kid raised their hand in one of these lectures. Everyone wants to be a businessman. No one wants to be Moshe Rabenu. Why? Because we have a wrong perspective of what Moshe Rabenu was and is. We think that if you're religious, that means you're poor. We think that if you're religious, that means that you're lacking. We don't realize that when you're a Ben Torah... The whole world exists only because of you. <speaking in Hebrew> Hashemid Barach says to the Prophet, if not for my covenant day and night, the rules of the world will cease to exist. Now I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. What do you think Hashem is really running this world for? The people that are going against them and violating Shabbat or the people that maybe they're keeping some mitzvot, but really their whole life is just to make money, or the people that are learning his taught 24 hours a day? Which one do you think he runs the world for? The ones that are following every single word that he says, or the ones that are violating almost every single one? Which one do you think he runs the world for? Which one do you think the Mashiach is coming to save? The one that's a chafetz Khaim? Or the one that uh, wants to be the next Donald Trump? Which one? When a person decides on a career, he has to decide big picture. Who do I want to be? Do I want to be the person that's a big deal in Shemaim? Or maybe big deal over here for a little while before I die. Maybe. At 30 years old, a person attains their full strength. The mainly says, I'm sorry. Rashi says that we learn this that from the book of Numbers, chapter four, verse two and three, that the Levim, the Levites, were allowed to participate only beginning the age of thirty. Why? Because that's the age where a man is the strongest that he's going to be in his life. This was actually a surprise to me. I thought that you're stronger earlier, but apparently, according to the Tawar, at least in that generation, it was at 30 years old. You're stronger physically, mentally, and so on. Meili says that a person, we use this as an example, that a person should follow the Leviim and make sure not to squander his strength on anything but the service of Hashem at this age, stop wasting time on stuyot. You're 30 years old. You stop going to clubs. Stop going to pubs. Stop hanging out, smoking 5,000 cigarettes and having beers with your friends. It's time to become a mensch. It's time to do something with your life. You're 30. Stop it. You're not allowed to be a kid anymore. I have a few people that I know, they're still kids. But they're already 40, 45, 46, 47. Are you surprised they're all still single looking for the one? You know how many guys are like this? Many, many guys, they want to continue being youngsters. Even after they reach 30, and 32, and 35, and 37, and 40. They want to go to clubs, and they want to go to Cancun. And they want to go to different parts of the world because they like to go to the beach, and they like to meet new girls, and well, guess what? They die. All they die, without a wife, without kids, without anything. No mashmaut to their life. No purpose of their life. The Midrash Shmuel says that this Koach, this Koach of the thirty years old, means that a person, once he reaches thirty years old, he will start having significant power to influence others. Until 30, a person should spend all of their time to increase their knowledge. Learn as much Torah as possible. Finish the Shas once, twice, ten times, as many times as you possibly can while you're still young. You're not going to have the same opportunities to learn later on in life as you do when you're young and less responsibilities. When a person already starts their life finishing the Shas early on in their life, they already can start their life once they actually are going to teach or influence others, they have already some substantial information. The problem is that sometimes certain, there's a certain style of teaching that goes much slower and you don't learn the whole shas. In fact, you barely learn half of it, even over a lifetime of, uh, of learning. And the reason why is because they delve into the details of the material. Understanding the words, understanding the root of the world, understanding why they use this word is used and not used, but a lot of the big dog the, the, the went against this style, and the reason why is because a person in the beginning of their learning should consume as much content as possible before delving into the details. Either way, whether you go into the details or you don't go into the details, you're not going to remember everything you're learning anyway. none of us do. Alva, you learn how you, you remember half of it. To the point, since you're not going to remember everything anyway, delving into all of it, uh, I mean, you're going to have to stay in the same gemara, same tractate for a very, very long time. But that means that there's still another 30 plus tractates that you're not going to review and may never review. And that's why there's unfortunately a lot of guys that are in the kolel that I know, that are already in their 30s, and some in their 40s and 50s, and haven't finished the shas Not even once. Even an average baal abayit that learns daf yomi, which is... Obviously, not at the same level of depth. But still, a guy that learns dafyomi after seven plus years, he finished the whole shas. He has a grasp on all of a lot of material. And sometimes you're going to see a guy that did one of these programs, no, in certain areas, more than avrech. Why? He covered a lot of ground. So for anyone that takes gemara and learning seriously... You have to finish the Shas. That's when your life has significance. That's when you've become something. Until you have, until you finish the Shas, very, very difficult for you to have that Torah. It's very difficult for you to have a mindset of Torah. Shas has to be a top priority for a person. Once, twice, ten times, a thousand times. You have to finish the Shas. We, Baruch Hashem, we have a program Where every Purim, we get uh, different guys together that commit to learning a certain amount of tractates over the next year. We try to finish the shas once a year. We try to finish the shas once a year. Baruch Hashem, we did it already a few times between a group of people. One guy takes Masechet Shabbat, another one takes Megillah, another one. Everyone commits that that's what they're going to do over the next year. And because most of the people... Are Avachim and they're you know the the uh, to we say it's a whatever track date you take will pay you a, a dollar a page. A dollar. No one's doing it for the money. But The point is, is that someone that's debating should I do uh let's say Abudaza or should I do Bachot? Oh wait, one of them has a little more pages. Let me do that one. Point is, Lavotai is that you try to motivate people to do to finish the Shas, to finish the shots. We actually. Just came back from New York. There was a Siumashas that uh, Iguda Rabanim did. They do it already every year for 30 years. Of course, this is a group. point is that a person needs to do it on their own and at least have a system to do it, especially if you have time. If you have a normal job and you don't go to sleep at 5 o'clock in the morning and you have a normal job and you have a normal 9-to-5 job, 9-to-6 job, you should be able to finish the Shas. Why? Because... You have a regular schedule, go learn a couple hours a day, learn your gemara, finish a few dapim, finish one duff even a day. Within seven years you're finished, you have something. You go faster, a couple dapim a day, you're already at three and a half years. If you're a uh, Rav you do seven dapim of the Yerushalmi, seven dapim of the uh, Bavli, you finish both of them every year. All oh, depends who you want to be. Point is that you have to you have to put this the shahs, you have to put the gemara on top of your letter of of, of, of things that you need to do. That's how you're going to get daat tola. That's also how you're going to get your kids to like tola, because every time you finish a masechet, you're supposed to have a little celebration. Rav Shach actually, uh, said that technically you should have a celebration every time you finish a daf. Why? Every time you finish a daf kamara, there's a purpose to your life. You've achieved something in the world. For one daf. Imagine a whole tractate. Imagine a whole uh, shas. Rabbi Fahim, God bless him, he, uh, every time he finishes, completes the shas, he has a party like a wedding. At a hall with mamash, like a mamash like a, a wedding. Like for but for, for seumah shas the speakers big rabbis and one of the videos that I saw he had uh, Rav David Yosef Rav David Yosef one of the Gedolei Adol the Rav Vadya's son attended uh, his uh, seumah shas and uh, I saw this with my own eyes even though he didn't want me to see it I saw it with my own eyes he says from now on you have to call him Gaon you have to call him Gaon Oh Hashem God bless him he's uh, Something special. But it's not just about finishing the Shas. It's about the Shas teaching us something. So at 30 years old, a person needs to use this koach, this this strength that he has, that he's learned all of this Torah. He needs to use it because now is the time that the Midrash Shmuel says is when you need to start beginning to teach people, guide people to Torah, i.e. do kiruv. Why do kiruv? Because now you have the ability to influence other people when you're 20 years old unless you have Some special gift. It's very difficult to influence the masses. You may be able to influence one or two people But to influence the masses is very difficult. You still don't have the experience. You still don't have the know-how But once you've arrived at 30 years old you've been learning for a while you have enough to lie in you, in you You've, you've heard enough lectures, you've been to enough lectures, you've read enough books, you've heard enough stories, that you should be able to implement it. And start teaching Torah. And don't think that you need to teach Chidushim. A lot of people get nervous that they think that if they're not going to teach some new concept that no one's ever heard, then it's a waste of time. This is the wrong mentality for this generation. As I always say, especially in Shurim, that I see a new crowd. This generation, unfortunately, is a very ignorant generation. People don't know anything. People don't know even the five books of Moses. People don't even know the basic pshat of anything. So even if you tell them simply the Parashat Shavua with Rashi you're already giving them an enormous amount of insight. And in fact, it's better you stick to the basics than teaching people the complicated stuff. And the reason why is because most people, you start teaching them the complicated stuff, you start going into pilpulim, into different uh, things like that, the mind twisters that people enjoy, you're going to lose the crowd. They have no idea what you're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about couple of guys were in a shield, both fell asleep. The third guy bumps them. He says, hey, hey, guys, guys. Get up. Get up. Why? He's up to the story. He's finally going to tell us a story. So you get up now. Not because they want to learn to They like stories. So at 30 years old, you have the power. You have to start using this power to do Kiruv. You have to start using this Torah to teach. The Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah says a person who learns without an intention to teach is a person without a God. Why? Because if you're learning Torah, that means you're learning the Midot of Hashem. You're learning the character traits of Hashem. So the biggest character trait that's most obvious is that Hashem is a giving. He's a giving God. He doesn't stop giving. He never gets. He only gives. So if you're going to learn, and you're going to learn the most important thing in life, and you're not going to share it, that means that you haven't learned anything. You haven't learned anything about his midot. At 40 years old, it says that, Ben 40 years old attains understanding. What does it mean? Bina. Bina is the ability to understand the ramifications of an idea, and extrapolate one fact from another. Simple example: somebody walks in right now, and you see that there is a. Uh, they're making. They're leaving footsteps of mud. Now you don't have to ask the guy anything. Why? Automatically, you can assume that it's raining outside. And that he stepped into mud or into a puddle of some kind. That's it. Why? Because you can understand from the fact that he has mud on his shoes and it's leaving tracks, it's still wet. So obviously it's still relatively fresh. That's bina. Bina is taking something and understanding something else from it. But this type of bina is a requirement. Being able to extrapolate an idea from an existing idea is a requirement in order for a person to rule on a lacha. If anyone ever wants to be an authority figure in Torah and rule to have to get to the right conclusion, they have to have been they have to be able to develop certain things. they have to be able to develop an idea. This is not something that you can typically do when you're very young. When you're 15 or 20 or 25, even though sometimes you're going to be right, sometimes you're going to be wrong, that Torah is not simply knowledge. It's also experience. Now, of course, yes, there are many, many Gdolim that already knew much more than we're ever going to know when they're already teenagers. But, and I have this one. But the, uh, the average person He's not going to have, he's not going to get to the, uh, where he needs to be until he's later on, until he has some serious experience. This 40 years old also is symbolic of what the Gemara says in Masih Abu Azra, page 5B, that the student does not fully understand his teacher until after 40 years. Meaning that sometimes your teacher is going to tell you something, and you'll understand the pshat of it to a certain extent. You'll understand he says a certain sentence, and you'll understand the basic meaning of what he said. But over time, maybe he said it again, maybe he didn't. But you see that based on other things that he said later on throughout your throughout your your uh, uh, your relationship with this rabbi you see that there's much more than meets the eye. There's much more information that he actually meant and implied originally, but you only understood it later on. We learned this from Bnei Israel, who only understood the real significance of the Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu taught them after 40 years. After 40 years. Even though he taught them already in Mount Sinai. The only really understood after 40 years, we see it in Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 3, where Moshe Rabbeinu says, But Hashem did not give you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear until this day. Meaning, you simply did not have the ability to understand everything that I said 40 years ago, 39 years ago, 38 years ago. You didn't have the ability. Why? You need to build up knowledge. And knowledge is again, like I said, is not just something that you just acquire by reading a book. The Derech Chavot says that Bina, as self-understanding, is also is uh, its introspection, where a person that gets to forty years old has to realize, okay, I've gone to halfway of my life. A life according to Judaism is 70 years. I'm already more than halfway there. I've spent most of my time, 40 years, chasing my desires, going after every little whim that uh, made sense to me or I wanted it. I never missed a steak sandwich, I never missed a Super Bowl, I never missed looking at a girl that wasn't my wife, I never missed all the opportunities to sin time to do tshuva. Why? I'm at least halfway there. I'm at least halfway to the grave now. It's time to do tshuva. The De'ech says at 40 years old you don't do tshuva. You have a serious, serious problem. You may never do tshuva. Because now you're getting to the point where you're addicted to the sin. And it's not just one or two like a teenager. Now you have already a couple of decades worth of sins that you're addicted to. Becomes very very difficult to do tshuva, not impossible but very difficult. Ben chamishim leitzah, a fifty year old now is ready. He's not able to offer his the heavy labor of the thirty year old like the Levites, but they were the ones that were the leaders. Why? Because at fifty years old, you now officially have life experience, and you can now offer your guidance. At this age, a person can draw on his life experience and intellect in order to advise others. And the he says, What's the, what is a, so why does the person have to be 50 years old in order to give advice? There are plenty of people that are not 50 years old that give advice. So what is really the secret of giving good advice, good guidance? Two simple things that are very, very hard to acquire. Experience and wisdom. You want to give good advice, you need to have both. If you only have one, it's going to be bad advice. If you have neither, tragedy. But if you're going to give advice to people, make sure you have both. Now, you don't necessarily need to have both on every single subject in the world. You just have to have both on the subjects you're giving advice on. If you have, let's say, learning experience, you can give advice on learning experience because you have learned. You've learned. Plus, you have the experience of learning and so on and teaching. But if you've never learned, don't tell anybody how to learn. If you've never been married, don't give anyone marriage advice, please. Please be quiet. When married people are speaking... You go to the corner and be quiet, like one of the children. Why? You have no idea what you're talking about. You think you know, but you don't know anything. Until you have a spouse, and you realize what it's like to sleep next to another person, and wake up next to them every day for 10-15 years, you be quiet. A lot of kids want to give advice to their parents. No, Ima, you shouldn't let Abba talk to you that way. Abba, I don't understand why you take that stuff from Ima. You know what kind of genom you're going to go to for that kind of advice? Do you know what kind of genom they're going to burn you in for giving your parents such stupid advice? First of all, you're never allowed to talk to your parents about their marriage. Ever. Ever. Even if they ask you. Never allowed. It's not your business. Second of all, what do you know about married? You're 15. What do you know about marriage? Why? Because you saw Abba yell at Ima and Ima yell at Abba. Do you know what happens behind closed doors? What do you know? Quiet. Also, all these little 25-year-olds, because they read a few articles in a magazine, they want to become psychiatrists or counselors. They never got married yet. But they want to be counselors for marriage. All the people, the best ones, are the ones like Tony Robbins. He gives marriage advice. He's on his fifth marriage. He should give you wedding advice. How to set up a wedding. He had five of them already. That he has experience. Married, he hasn't known anything. He got divorced. If you're going to give marriage advice, you have to have a happy marriage as an, as, at least as a prerequisite. If you're not happily married, pick a different career. Pick different advice. Experience and wisdom are very easy to say, very hard to attain, Rabotai. Because wisdom is acquired through toil. You have to acquire it, you have to chase it like you're chasing gold. It seems easy to read all those books until you start. A lot of people start books, very hard to finish them. A lot of people have libraries in their house, but if you ever notice, most of the books are brand new, 10 years later. It's easy to buy books on Amazon and on Art Scroll and on Feldheim and on all these wonderful websites that make life easy for us to buy. For 20 bucks, you can buy De Hashem. Reading it is a different story though. People, it's easy to buy books. Hard to read them. You can't acquire wisdom by buying books. You can only acquire wisdom by reading them. You have to read the book in order to acquire wisdom. Not just tell people, look at all the books I have. Look, look, I have Lakish and Rabbi Akiva. Did you read them? Oh, I didn't get to it yet. Oh, so which ones did you read? Oh, you see that that one right there in the corner over there? That one over there? Third shelf? Yeah, the red one? Yeah, the one behind it. The little one. The little pamphlet. I read that one. little pamphlet. You can acquire wisdom by having books. You can acquire it by reading them. Now what about experience? Everybody wants experience. Everybody thinks they have experience. But the reality is once you're going to hear what experience is, you're not going to really want it. Why? What's experience, Abutai? What does it mean to have experience? No. Volunteers. One person knows because he's nodding. Okay, don't answer. Two. What's ex- what does experience mean? I don't know what it says in a dictionary, but I'll tell you what it really means in real life. No, what do you think experience means? Okay, so you went to the action park. That means you know how to be in an action park. Whether you should go or not. Okay, you're in the right direction. You're very, very right direction. But there's a, there's an ingredient that's missing. Experience about is hardship. That's what experience is. Experience is difficulty. Experience is obstacles. When I, when a manager of a company, a CEO of a company, an owner of a company looks at your resume, he doesn't actually care about where you worked. As much as he cares about how long you work there, if I looked at the resume and I saw that you worked at ten places, and all of them were great companies, you worked at uh, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, uh, Goldman Sachs, all all the big names. That actually is not a good. It's not a good resume. Why? Because most likely, unless you're 80 years old. Most likely, you didn't stay anywhere for more than a couple of months. That means you have no experience. That means you only got coffee for every single firm. That's all you did. Why? What are you going to do in six months? Now, if I saw on your resume that you were at two places, one place you were there for three years, the other place you were there for five years, automatically your resume counts much more than anybody else, regardless of what the name is of who you worked for. Why? Now you you have a chance. Maybe you have experience. Because you cannot not have difficulty if you work anywhere for five years. If you are at a place for five years, there has to be difficulty at somewhere along the line. You have had to hit the wall a few times over that five-year time frame. I want to know about that five years. I want to know about that difficulty. I don't care about your success. Everybody writes about their success. Oh yeah, I made the leads list, and this list, and I got a reward. You know, they spent $80 on, on some plaques and, and they gave me one of them so that made me feel good about myself. I don't care about your plaques. I care about why did you get fired. I care about why did you quit. I care about when did you fail and what did you do after. That's experience. Experience is not your success. Most people learn zero from success. Geniuses are made through failure. But not just because they failed. There's a bunch of losers in the world that fail every day, but they're not geniuses. The geniuses are the ones that learn from the failure. To experience Rabotai is overcoming obstacles, overcoming failure. If you're not willing to fail, you will never, ever succeed. Never. Failure is a prerequisite to success. You must fail in your life in order to succeed. Most people are so scared to fail, they never take a risk. They only stay safe. And that's why most people are sheep. Most people just stay exactly where they are. They never do anything. If they're talmid, they'll be a talmid. They'll just learn whatever the rabbi says. They learn, they learn, they learn, they learn. They never become a rabbi. They never become anything special. They never write a book. Never do anything out of the why? Because they're so scared of their own shadow that they're scared to go out because it's not common. You have to go. Why? You're ish kodesh. Hashem made you in His image. He didn't make you a sheep. If you wanted sheep, he put you in a farm. Every one of you has the ability to be a superstar. Every single person has to say, when will I be like Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? It doesn't matter how you started and where you were and when you this and when you that. It means nothing. But that means you have to be willing to fail. But not just fail just to take chances, jump off a roof just to see what happens. That's craziness. I'm talking about Failure because it had a chance to succeed. People are scared. People are scared to do it. Same thing in business. Most people end up working for the same company for a long time or same position for a long time. Twenty years she's a secretary. Twenty-five years he's in a is in a stock room. Thirty years he's, he's he's you know delivering mail. Why aren't you the CEO? Why aren't you uh, the CFO? Why don't you own half the company? Why don't you start your own company by now? 30 years you're a secretary? Something's wrong. Oh, they never gave me a promotion. No. Promotions are not given. Promotions are taken. Promotions are not given. Promotions are taken. Who takes them? Winners. People that are looking to take a risk to be better, but also willing to lose. Because it's necessary to win. Now, butai, these are prerequisite tools for you to succeed in life. Not just in uh, in business, but also in Torah. In Torah, a lot of reasons why a lot of pe- people don't go out there. When they know Torah, they have rechim, They know 50 million more times than I do. But they don't go out there to teach. Why? Oh, maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I don't know this. How do I don't know this. I heard it from them. Some of the people that I know, they're so holy. They say, "Why do these people even bother talking to me?" If anyone read the Alon Hakodesh number six, Alon Hakodesh number six had an article by Rav Benjamin Alimi. He's one of the Avreichim in the Kollel of Ephraim. He sends me a message uh, yesterday or the day before. You would think he's one of my Talmidim. You would think. It's like, oh, K'vod I just want to know, when are you ever going to come visit us in Eretz Israel? We need Chizuk. We need you to help us do Tshuva. He tells me this. We need you to help us do Tshuva. You know, I know you deal with a lot of people. But we need something too. We need to get stronger too. You would think uh, he's my Talmid from the message. This Kodesh Kodeshim He for the last 15 years or so He's in Avrech and kollel, learns every day But he also runs an organization With about 300 kids To make sure that they go to yeshiva Either they've gone off the derech Or they're at risk to go off the derech nefesh, Day and night Him and his wife Baruch Hashem, they have eight children. I don't know how they have t- time to breathe. They make sure to take care of 300 kids to make sure they all stay in the yeshiva system. They all go back to yeshiva. They all stay on. They take them on trips. They teach them. They whatever Before, uh, before um, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, he goes to every one of the yeshivot that he put them in, and he gives each one of them a piece of chocolate and a Coca-Cola. And a soda. These are poor people, but the rabbi gave me a piece of chocolate, and he gave me a little soda. The kid just got a lomava. Now him, now I just told you he has a good heart, right? Okay, but that's not it. That's not. You think I told you the story just because of that? That would be enough, but Rabbi find calls him. This is Baal miracles. This is the person miracle miracle life. I'll give you a couple of stories about them. Just a couple of days ago, they were coming back, I think it was from Tveria, something like that, Tveria or some other uh, city in, uh, it was the middle of the night, and, uh, no, they were like in a desert somewhere, in the middle of the night, 11.30 at night, the car overheats, the engine literally, Got red to the point where it actually projected light. Now it's as dark as it gets. There's no light. There's no traffic lights. Desert. It's like the darkness plague in Egypt. Now this already is not exactly comfortable. There's no cars. There's no this. There's nothing. What's worse. A car with three Arabs in it pulls over right in front. Now, unfortunately, this is actually one of the um, tricks of some of these terrorists where they pretend like they broke down or they pretend they want help or they want to help. And uh, that's how they sometimes kidnap people or kill them. M'shem So the three Arabs are there. Everybody... Habalimi, A and a few others are there. This could be what this could be. The Arabs come out of the car. Say, What's wrong? Oh the car. Oh, Allah sent us to help you. Excuse me. Allah, he sent us to come help you. They work on his car for a half hour. Fix his car. He says, only one condition. Well, what can I do for you? What kind of condition? Give us blessing. Give was a blessing. This is like the three angels that came to Abraham Avinu. When, when do you hear such things? This is a bigger miracle than such, such things. Another time, there was a uh, few boys that were off, and he was getting them back into the yeshiva system, but they were getting influence from one guy. And this kid was a big kid, really big kid. I think he was maybe 17 already. One of these tall, muscular kids. To say he was off the derech is the least you can say. And he was a big influence to the others. So Rav was talking, No, come on, come on, let's get back. You're back. Nu, go to Yeshiva. You come from a good family. Come on, let's go. What are you going to do when you grow up? It's like, ah, oh, yeah, it all sounds good, but... You got to give me something more. You got to convince me with something. I said, "Well, whatever you want. What do you want me to get? To get? What can I do to get you to yeshiva? Now, what does a really big kid say to a little tiny rabbi? He said, "Beat me in arm wrestling. Beat me in arm wrestling, and I'll go to yeshiva. Now everybody starts laughing. Why? Because there's a little little rabbi, little one, and he's like a little uh, goliath. And it's like, ah, okay, this kid doesn't want to go to yeshiva. Why even bother? Believe me? No problem. Let's go. Let's go. You if I, if I beat you? Yeah. How do you arm wrestle? What is it? Oh, no, you have to... Put, oh, okay, I I'm said it. arm wrestling. You think I have time to learn arm wrestling? Oh, so I have to take the arm down? Yeah. Okay, Sam. I'm not doing this for me. I don't know what it is. I don't know how, who, what, when. But if I beat him, if you if you beat him, he's going to yeshiva. What do you think happened? He's in yeshiva now. Ad. shimolad. shimolad. The little tiny rabbi beats the guy out. <laughs> it's not you. It's not you, and that's why I try to remind people all the time. It's not you that's doing anything. It's only Hashem. One of my students from Lakewood just—I talked to him on the way here. He says, "Should I take this job? Not take this job. Take this promotion? Not take this promotion? It's a much bigger job. It's a much bigger deal. It's a much bigger this. It's a much bigger responsibility, and so on." After going through a line of questions, I said, "Yes." And why? I said, "Because it's not you anyway. It's not all these. If you had to do all this stuff that you say you have to do, I'd say no, no, no. Stay where you are." But it's not you. It's Hashem. Hashem gave you a gift. You say thank you. You could do it. You act like a little like you're actually doing it, but it's Hashem at the end. At the end, it's always Hashem. Anyone that thinks they're doing anything, just know it's a little bit, little bit, dust of kfira. If you think you're doing anything in your life, you do anything, it's a little bit, tiny. Depends how much you think you do. Dust of kfira. It could be dust like the desert dust cloud of it depends how much you think you're doing now one of the amazing stories that was just publicized a few hours ago on uh, Boot is a story that Ravalimi actually said he's one of the Avrechim that's actually uh, we have a channel for them that did some shurim in Yerushalayim about two years ago three years ago we uh, had uh, some shurim from the Avrechim they did it in Hebrew He did a series about David Melech. Anyway, he witnessed the story firsthand, and there we'll finish. And we'll continue the Mishnah and complete it as other Shem tomorrow. But he says he lives in the Yeshuv in a area called um, Tension, Tension. Tension's is about 20 minutes away from uh, Yerushalayim. Not a, not exactly a uh, rich area. And uh, a lot of tzaddikim live there. Another one that we know, Bar Kokhba, that was in our Alona Kodesh a week before him, that came out with the book. The uh, Rav Mizrahi book that uh, the, the Rabbi of the Chida that he republished, he lives there also. Mamas tzaddikim. One of the families that I told you guys about, the, the woman that our uh, wicked husband left her with eight kids with nothing. We've had the merit to help her a few times. These tzaddikim, tzaddikim, unbelievable. She says there was a young girl over there that got sick, really, really sick, was dying. And one of the chassidim in the, in the area didn't know her, never met her. But it bothered him so much, he started praying for a non-stop. The neshamot the, the were connected somehow, that he couldn't, he just had to pray for a non-stop, get other people to pray for, and pray, and pray, and pray. And the father eventually noticed this, like, why wow, is praying for my daughter so much? We never met the guy in our life. And he appreciated it, and he, Mamash. miraculously she had more and more time. One day, On a Friday he goes to uh, his wife he says I'm gonna go take a nap wake me up in a couple of hours he takes a nap his son comes to wake him up Abba no answer Abba no answer Abba no answer he calls Ima. She comes, she checks, he died. At the same time, the phone rings, the son answers, and who is it? It's the father of the girl that was dying, asking to help, help, please tell your Abba, give me oh, all, you know, I can't, Abba, you can't tell him, Abba died two minutes ago. He doesn't know what's going on in the kid He says, no, no, Abba can't come to the phone right now. No, no, but you have to tell him, please, my, my daughter is dying. Something happened, she's, she, she's dying. Abba can't come to the phone now. The girl died. Same time he died, the girl died. Now because already was Shabbat coming in, Rav had to watch over the body, all of Shabbat, because the body is muksa, you can't bury. You can't bury him. So you have to be stay with the body, the whole Shabbat. You can leave the room, but uh, he was there. He was there. Anyway, short while later, like very, very short while later. A woman just goes to the doctor. She has some pain. In the same area, she discovers, she has the disease in her spine. It's wrecked her spine. He said, it's only a matter of uh, days. You can come to the hospital if you want, but there's nothing we can do for you. Nothing we can do for you, ma'am. Sorry. Mamash, horrible, horrible news. As horrible as it gets. At the same time, same day, a little kid, three years old, same community, also goes to the doctor, same exact thing. Same exact thing, he has something on his spine, he said, we're sorry, uh, Abba and Nima. Days, days, he's got days left. Shem Achem. The community is up and roar. Shem Achem, what's happening? It's a plague. What's happening here? Just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, the Hasid and the, the little girl died. Now these two. What's happening? Everybody knew there's something going on. That night, the Hasid, the died, comes to the father of the daughter that died in a dream. And he looks good. and Everything is good. Father says, "I can't thank you enough. You gave my daughter more time, and I appreciate all the prayers you did for us." Oh Hashem, thank you, thank. You. I know it's all in Shemaim; it's meant. Even they're not like us, complain about uh, we lost fifty bucks on the way here. They know everything is from Hashem. Thank you, give the prayers you did. Thank you, thank. You. I owe you so much. Thank you. He says, "Please, please, if you can do me a big favor, my neshama, if you can do me a big favor." I died, and I left. An outstanding balance. There's somebody I owe money to. There's a person I owe money to. If you can please pay the money back. Because my family doesn't have the money. It's a lot of money. And I don't have it. My family doesn't have it. If you could please. I need the debt paid. As you guys understand. You can't go up to heaven if you have debt. Even if you're a tzaddik. You have debt. You owe somebody money. It's a problem. You have to pay back the debt. So, the father wakes up from the dream, goes and finds the person. Says, uh, The Hasid owes you money? Obviously, he uses his name. Yeah, how do you know? I know, I know, I know. He came to me in a dream. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Tell me, how much does he owe you? He tells him the amount. He goes, oh, okay, that's what he said. And when did he borrow it? Oh, yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said, that's what he said, that's what he said. said. Okay, I'm paying, here. He gave him all the money. Big amount. I'm giving you this money to honor the dead. Freilu yinishmat of my daughter. And even more so, to give credit to the two neshamot that are sick right now. The next day, the sick mother and the sick baby went back to the doctor. Again, everybody's Yachem uh, is days left. The doctors do another test. They review the baby. They review the woman. Not related. But they review them. And they think they made a mistake. They do it again. I think it's the wrong people. And they compare the two. The scan from two days ago when they gave him the diagnosis that you have a few days left to live. And they gave him a scan of what they did. You can see the scan. I think the scan is online now. And if you want, they give you the number of uh, Rabbi Elimi. You can contact them. They give you the names of the people. You can talk to them if you want. Done. Healed. As if it never existed, both for the baby and for the woman. Why? Avat Israel, Avat Chinam. The Bet mikdash was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam. Everyone likes to talk about Avat Chinam, loving each other for no reason. But yet we forget to tell each other the truth. Yet we forget to honor each other. Yeah, we forget to honor the people that uh, we know and that we don't know. Avat chinam is not such a simple thing to do. Avat chinam means it's mesirut nefesh. It's self-sacrifice. It's not so simple to do. But a person that's willing to do it, a person that's willing to sacrifice his own comfort for the sake of others, that's a chassid. That's a chassid. Hasid is not just because of your clothing. Hasid is someone that's going to sacrifice his comfort, that's going to sacrifice all the things that he wants, all the things that he worked hard for, for other people. Whether he likes them or he doesn't like them, knows them, doesn't know them, all he needs to know is that they are Hashem's children. I don't mean you gave the homeless guy five dollars, it doesn't bother you. I mean you did things that are above and beyond. You overcame your own midot. And last but not least, to give you an example of what this means, the the Lublin told his keila to dance on Osh Hashanah. He told him to dance on Osho Shana. Now, a few of the Talmudim said, What do you mean dance on Rosh Hashanah? Jomadin! How are you going to dance on Rosh Hashanah? Jomadin, Kodarav. But they didn't say anything. He just saw it. they're not dancing. These are Talmudim, Tzadikim. So he told them, Come, come outside. A few Talmidim came outside. The Chosemi Lublin, Rosh Hakodesh, put his hand on top of their eyes as if it's like a curtain. And as if he unfolded the curtain. And they saw everyone that's inside, that's dancing, as if they're being judged in heaven. Each one is going, the neshama is going to heaven, and they're getting din chaim. They're going to live. Good din, good year, good everything. Then they see the other side, not dancing. (laughs) Shem what kind of din they have? Difficult year, problems, sickness, and Achem. So they say, Kvadabah, why? Why? He says, You're going to dance or not? They went to dance. Question is, met why? The Bala tool Simon 581, says that there's no nation like Amisrael that knows the character traits of its God, of its owner. There's no nation like Amisa that knows the character traits of their God based on the their uh, his what he expects from us, the mitzvot, the Torah, Where the other nations, when their judge, when their owner, when their king tells them he's about to judge them They're sad and wear black and they're expecting the worst. But the nation of Israel shaves and showers and shows up in white and dances in the judgment. Why? Because they know that he's going to perform a miracle for them. What does it mean he's going to perform a miracle for them? They know that the truth be told, they don't deserve a good deen based on their actions. They weren't exactly Moshe Rabenu and Rabbi Akiva last year. She wasn't exactly Sarah Emenu last year. But Hashem is still going to give her another chance. He's going to literally make a miracle. He's going to make a miracle to give her another chance. Why? Because he has emunah in her. But this year she's going to do tshuva. This year he's going to do tshuva. And because we know the Torah, we know that Hashem says, I love you. Where does he say, I love you? He says in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, Hafti otchem Hashem. Hashem says, I love you. I love you. What does it mean, I love you? I love you means... That you know what the other person needs. When you say I love you to somebody, the Chafetz Chaim says, that means you know what they need. That means you know what they need. Not, you know what they want. You know what they need. So Hashem says, I love you. Because He knows what we need. And what is what do we need? Shlomo HaMelech says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, Whoever Hashem loves, like the prophet Malachi says, he rebukes. He gives him difficulty. Why? But he loves him. Yes, that's why he gives him difficulty. Why? Because that's the only way for me to give him wisdom and experience. That's the only way for me to make him a yid, a good one, a tzaddik, a tzaddika. To give him difficulty is going to make him the diamond that he can be. And because I love him, I know what he needs. I know he needs me to rebuke him. I know he needs me to give him difficulty. Because that's what's going to make him the diamond. And because I love him, I'm going to give him exactly that. So for all of those people that say they love Hashem, do you know what Hashem needs? Did you ever think about what he says he wants? How about Yirat Shemayim? How about Kvod Hashem? How about... You love Hashem with all your heart. Not with just $5. And Rav says in his Ma'amal last week, he says, if we were raising money for a kid that got sick in a few minutes, we tell him, listen, he needs to get a surgery in America, we have to get plane tickets, and doctors and the best specialists in the world, in a matter of hours, we'd raise twenty five, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever we needed to save this kid's body. We'd raise the money in hours to save the kid's body because you need a surgery in America, in uh, and in Guatemala, in Cuba, and wherever he needs, we're going to get the money because we're going to save his body. And Rabbi Limi, the one that sees miracles on a day to day basis, says. How come we don't do it for for, for the neshama? How come we don't do it when the little boy is about to go off the derech and we can't even raise a hundred bucks to get him back? We can't even raise two thousand dollars to pay the yeshiva. We can't raise any money to save the neshama. The body will save as much and will raise as much as possible. But the neshama, almost nothing. These are the things that we need to review. These are the things we need to consider if we're going to say to Hashem Barach on Rosh Hashanah that we love him, we'll say that we love him, that means we, by default we know what he needs, which means that Kvod Hashem, there's not enough of it. Yirat Hashem, there's not enough of it. Saving his children, there's not enough of it. Any questions? Yes. Yom Adin. It's a celebration because we expect, we expect a miracle. We expect a miracle it doesn't mean that we deserve a miracle, and it doesn't mean that it's still not the significance of the day of what it is. It's still, it's still that. But the Chachamim didn't uh, say the Alakha to do that. We follow what the Chachamim concluded. There's obviously multiple opinions. I don't know all of them, but. Chachamim decided this is what we do and this is what we follow. Next. ken okay. The good ones or the bad ones? No. Good. Okay. A person that defends his choice initially it's because he's arrogant people do not want to admit that they're wrong most of the time it's because they don't believe that they're wrong because if they said it how could it be wrong and our ego is so big that we don't think that it's even possible for us to be wrong now That already by itself is a problem, but it's human nature. The bigger problem is when a person knows that he's wrong, he's proven wrong, and he stays by his opinion. Like this one guy that just uh, printed some CDs for us, he did a horrible job, horrible, horrible job. And the reality is it's not the job that we paid for, it's not the job that we wanted, I told him, "Well, listen. Look at the job that you did. Look at what we gave you, and provided you. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's, uh, it's garbage. Oh, why? But this is what we said that we're going to do." I said, "You really, you really think I would have agreed, or anybody? Forget me. Anybody would have agreed for you to make a CD like this with holes in it, and the picture looking like this. Like you really, you actually believe this?" No, but see, we're doing, I told you we're going to do this type of printing and not this other type of printing. Okay, so what's the other type of printing? Oh yeah, it's two pennies, more expensive. Two cents more expensive. Oh, so I want it to look like it just came out of a grinder and, and save myself two pennies. Meaning, the guy knows he's wrong, but it's why? If he says he's wrong, if he admits he's wrong, it's going to cost him money. So, Sometimes the reason why we don't want to admit that we're wrong is because it's going to hurt our pocket. Most of the time we don't want to admit that we're wrong because it's going to hurt our ego. Because we don't want other people to have get the best of us. We, most people think that by saying that you're wrong, that means that you're inferior. That's wrong. In fact, admitting that you're wrong actually shows you're superior. It shows that you're searching for the truth. It shows that you are the truth. Shows that your ego is not necessarily dominating over you, but you're dominating over your own ego. So, the reason why most people stay with their wrong opinion is because their ego is in the way. And actually, the Chachamim explained it, the Gemara says it, the root of all evil, the root of all sins, is having Gava, it's having ego. That's the root of all evil. Anyone that does, you look at any sin, it starts with ego for example somebody asked me just today what about somebody that's a murderer I said it's a hundred percent ego why what is the, the murderer the murderer that murdered somebody why did he murder somebody because that person violated his space in some way or another he took a girl that he thinks belongs to him he took money that he thinks belongs to him or even took a seat That he believes belongs to him. Which means what? He thinks the world belongs to him. He's an egocentric person. Now initially, when he was a kid, no one told him stop being so arrogant. He never learned any Musar. But initially he was just a kid. Later on he developed, the ego grew with him. The ego grew with him, out of control. Little by little the ego gets the best of him. And eventually the ego has to take action. Somebody took his seat and he murdered him for it. How many times do we hear of horrible stories of two guys, you know, fighting over a parking spot and killing each other? Why? It's all ego. It's all has to do with ego. It's all about arrogance. The root of all evil is arrogance. And that's why if a person does not want to go to Geyenom, he has to first understand that this ego is the first thing he must destroy. He must destroy his ego. If he is not willing to accept Musar, he's not going to live. He's not going to live for Allah Abba. That's what Shlomo Amalekh says. That a person that loves Musar is going to live. But a person that hates Musar is going to die. What does it mean he's going to die? Meaning that without Musar, he can never do Tshuva. But I don't mean just learning Musar. I mean actually listening to it and applying it to yourself. Regardless of whether, whether whether it's coming from me or your wife or your kid or somebody else. And that's one of the biggest flaws in people is that they love to hear the truth but it has to do with everybody else. Yeah, tell those Mechale Shabbat they're idol worshippers. Why? Because you're not a Mechale Shabbat. So you don't care. Yeah, tell those thieves that they're not going to Gan Why? Because you don't think you steal. But as soon as I, as soon as the rabbi says anything that pertains to you, ah, this guy's a Korach, bal Machloket. This guy makes Machloket all the time. He doesn't like this, he doesn't like that, doesn't like everything. Every going to go to Gainam, except him. And they start making up things. Why? Because finally, it hit home. Finally, it hit home. So a person that wants to go to Gan Eden, first and foremost, needs to understand, your ego does not belong in Gan Eden. Your ego does not belong in then You have to accept Musar. You have to accept being wrong. You have to admit that you're wrong. And you have to move on. If you cannot admit when you're wrong, you haven't learned a thing. You may have learned a lot of Torah, but the Torah didn't teach you anything. You may have learned a lot of books, but the books haven't taught you anything. You read books, just like people read math and history. People watch a movie, but five minutes later they forget what happened in the movie. Why? Because the movie didn't affect their life. A person that comes to a lecture but doesn't remember anything five minutes later or a week later or a day later, that means that they treated the lecture like a movie. A movie might make you happy while you're watching it, or at least it makes you smile, makes you laugh, makes you emotional. But a day later, 99% of that emotion is gone. You're not going to continue laughing at the joke that the guy said in the movie a day later. You're not going to continue crying about the emotional scene you saw a day later. In fact, you're probably never going to do it again. Why? It's gone. It's like a, it's a, it's a memory. Oh yeah, it's a good movie? Yeah, it's good. Why? I don't know. It was something that I know. It made me feel something at some point. What do you feel? I don't know. So if you go to a lecture, if you go to a shiur Torah and you have the same thing that you forgot, that means you treated the shiur like Torah like a, like a movie. You've wasted your time. You've wasted the speaker's time. It was better off you were sleeping. Same thing. Why? Because at least if you're sleeping, the neshama would have learned. And the body wouldn't have gone out in the way. But the reality is, Rabotai, the reason why most people, they learn the shurim, but a lot of them don't change is because they're not willing to apply it here. Apply it to yourself. Apply the teachings to yourself. You like to talk about other people. Like talk about other people's mistakes, other people's failures, not yourselves, and that's where Musar starts. Musar starts at home. Any else? tomorrow night we have Bezot Hashem another shiur. We've been on for a little while already. We have a. Uh, we're going to complete this Mishnah Bezot Hashem, uh, and then we have another shiur in um, around here. Actually, I think. Uh, no, tomorrow is in Miami, Thursday, Thursday, Thursday is around here, Yeah, Nativeza is around here, on Thursday it's going to be I believe at uh, 8 o'clock sharp, not like here we start 20 minutes late, most likely it's going to be right right on time, uh, most likely a little slightly shorter shiur. I don't know what it's going to be about, you guys can pick the topic once we get there or they can pick the topic, doesn't really make a difference to me. But tomorrow iss the we'll finish this mishnah, Va le olam, amen, ve amen.